Hi, my name is Nikki. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed Crime Crime Stories, a weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. We're going to be introducing a new segment tonight. We're calling it True Crime Headlines. So whichever one of us is not telling a bed crime story is going to talk to you guys a little bit about some current crime events that are happening across the nation, around the world. Uh, It's just kind of an idea that Nikki and I had to bring you guys a little bit of extra Uh, extra stories to satiate the palate until we meet again. So these are this week's true crime headlines. Um, So both of the ones that I chose are actually in regards to TikTok. Um, The very first one is landlord allegedly murdered couple found in viral TikTok suitcase video was angry about unpaid rent. So this was published on August 25th, 2020. Um, I found this on lawandcrime.com. Um, This is basically in regards to the viral video of um, two bodies found in a suitcase in a TikTok video Um, in in regards to the follow up of the landlord who is basically accused of murdering them. And then the second uh, story that I picked is also in regards to TikTok. And it is, did he kill neighbor to become TikTok famous or was it self-defense? And this is on the New York Times. And this is about Zachary Lameth um, says he was defending himself when he fatally stabbed William Durham. Um, Mr. Durham's family says he had another reason. So if you want to learn more about this story, you can um, go to nytimes.com. All right. And here is Charlie with this week's bed crime story. Thank you so much, Nikki. So um, the story that I'm going to tell this week is actually one of my all-time favorites. This is a quite famous murder. Um, took place in the 60s. It's one that I actually talk about fairly often. I know that sounds really silly, but I reference this a lot um, because it's to me, it's a very important story to tell. So the story that I'm going to be telling you today is the story of the murder of Kitty Genovese. Um, I got my sor- I got my sources from Wikipedia, the master Wikipedia. And actually, most of the information that I have in the story is from Wikipedia. The Wikipedia page about this story is incredibly, incredibly dense. Um, so much so that I actually donated money today to Wikipedia because I was like, thank you, Wikipedia. Um, So main source is Wikipedia, but I also found one article on the Chicago Tribune that I'm going to reference in the story and also an article from PBS. So here's the story of my girl, Kitty Genovese. I don't know why I find that I have like a um, weird kinship with her, which doesn't make a lot of sense. You're going to see we have just very, very, very few strange like third party ancillary things in common. But she herself just seemed like a total badass and like really ahead of her time of just her general badassery. I don't know her. Oh, my God. I love this story so much. So I'm um, like... Yeah. Well, I see her and I know her. No. Oh, I love her. So maybe I know the story. I hope so, because this is a really good one. And okay. it's been it has been the subject of a lot of not just true crime documentaries and stories and podcasts, but it's also been in pop culture as well. There was actually it was referenced in a girls episode on HBO. Like could even Genevieve is a very mainstream murderer. And I'm going to explain kind of why it became so infamous, too. Um, All right, so let's get into it. Kitty Genovese was born Catherine Susan Genovese on July 7th, 1935. She was born in Brooklyn, New York, 
and she was born to Italian-American parents. She was the eldest of five children and was raised Catholic. They grew up in the mostly Italian and Irish neighborhood of Park Slope in western Brooklyn. They grew up in like a nice walk-up brownstone, beautiful, like a very beautiful area of Brooklyn. Um, She went to the all-girls Prospect Heights High School and her classmates recall that Kitty was very self-assured, kind of beyond her years. She had a very sunny disposition. That's how she was described by her classmates. In 1954, her family moved out of New York to New Canaan, Connecticut. But Kitty, she just finished high school. Um, she was actually also engaged to be married. So she stayed in Brooklyn. She moved in with her grandparents um, in order to prep for the wedding. And she wanted to stay there and just kind of continue her life there in Brooklyn. The family's move was prompted because her mother witnessed a murder. Now, I could not find any information about the murder that her mother witnessed. And I was really kind of annoyed about it because I wanted to know. Um, But the family, I guess, just got kind of disenchanted by New York because of this and, and moved to Connecticut. Kitty stayed behind and lived with her grandparents. Uh, by the end of 1954, Kitty had already been married and the marriage had been annulled. So within the year after graduating from high school, she got married. And by the end of the year, her marriage was already annulled and she was a single woman. After the annulment, she moved into her own apartment in Brooklyn and she was working clerical jobs just to pay her rent. And by all accounts, she absolutely hated working in offices. It was just not her jam. She didn't enjoy it. Um, By the late 50s, she started to bartend. So here's Kitty, young girl, working in a bar in the 50s. Like, like I said, I just, there's something about her that she is just, she's kind of the coolest. Progressive for Um, that time. Yeah, just really progressive and just kind of cool and very headstrong. Yeah. No, I'm going to stay in New York. Love you, family. I'm staying here in New York. This is what I'm going to do. Um, we'll find out soon why she did not remain married to her husband. Couldn't find any information about him either, but she was just really cool. Um, she was actually arrested in the summer of 1961 for bookmaking. So basically she was a bookie. So at the bar that she worked at, she was taking bets on horse races from the patrons at the bar and Uh was running this like illegal bookie scenario. So she was fined $50 and she was fired from her job at the bar. (laughs) Like it's just... I don't know. I, love I wonder that. how much $50 was back then. I don't know. I don't know the conversion rate of $50 in 1971. Joby's going to go to Google. Joby's going to. Just because I'm kind of curious. Google has conversion. Of I'm like, I feel like $50, $50 is not. I, I'm going to say this. Can I guess before you look it up? Yeah. I'm going to say $1,000. Can I say 500 I don't know why I want to say 500 500 500 I also feel like that's not really as efficient. I don't think so either. Fee for book, being a bookie. How much is it? 500 Tell me it's 500 In other words, $50 in 1961 is equivalent in purchasing power to about $434.65. Rude. Rude. That's so kind of close. Just, Those are false facts. <laughs> I do not trust Listen, Google anymore. Google does not lie. I don't know about that. Okay. <clears throat> so, fine $50, fired from her job at the bar. So she started working at a bar called Ev's 11th Hour Bar, and this was in Queens. Now, I'm assuming it's pronounced Ev's. It's E-V apostrophe S. So I figured if it's Eve's, it would be E-V-E, but this Mm. is just E-V, so I'm guessing Ev. So Ev's 11th Hour Bar, and this was in the Hollis, Queens area of New York. She actually wound up taking over managing the bar because the owner of the bar apparently was just kind of like not present. So she just took over managing the bar. She was working double shifts 
Um, because she was trying to save up money to open up an Italian restaurant. Love her. Um, <laughs> she shared her apartment. She wound up moving to Queens to be close to the bar. And she shared her apartment in Queens with her girlfriend, Marianne Zilanko. They met in 1963. So this is why her yeah. marriage was annulled. She had come to terms with her sexuality. She knew that she didn't want to live a lie. Yeah. And, um, you know, started bartending. And she eventually did meet Marianne. And they lived together. And Good for her. Yeah. it was. It's really sweet. So I kind She's of... She's very progressive. She's very progressive. Just very cool. I love her. Um, so I had mentioned earlier that I found this Chicago Tribune article. Um, I want to mention it here because we mentioned Marianne. Um, the article that was written for the Chicago Tribune was written by a gentleman named Jeff Perlman, and he wrote it on the 40th anniversary of her death in 2004. Um, and he interviewed Marianne. And she talks about... Um, their relationship, how it was brief, but it was very loving and they were very close and very devoted to one another. And, you know, kind of what the trials were of being in a same-sex same relationship at that time of, I have to introduce you as my friend because you can't be my girlfriend and not being able to hold hands and kind of stealing glances and stealing kisses and just how, you know, how afraid they were that it was going to be found out that they were in this relationship, except for their just very close, tight-knit group of friends. Yeah, because up to like 20 years ago, it wasn't... In some places, even today, it's not exactly safe to be out and holding hands and kissing and all of that. Uh, Is this like... So you can cut this out if you want. But is this like Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing? Oh, no. no, no. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. I don't know why I was thinking like... Mm -mm. Okay. Um, I've never fucking heard this at all. (laughs) That's why I'm like... But we haven't gotten to like the meat and potatoes yet. Oh, okay. Um... So what I would recommend if you guys do find the story interesting, just to kind of keep Kitty's memory alive in a loving way, um, to find that article. Like I said, it was written by Jeff Perlman in 2004 for the Chicago Tribune. And I do believe it was called um, Famous 64 Murder uh, Murder Victim Immortalized by Friend or whatever. Um, but it's a beautiful article and I highly recommend reading it if you have the chance to do so. As I mentioned, Kitty was working at Ev's 11th hour sports bar. So she was there really late working, closing up the bar. She was managing. So she was always kind of the last one to be to, to be there. It was 2.30 a.m. on March 13th in 1964 when she leaves the bar and begins her drive home. She arrives at her apartment complex around 3.15 in the morning and she parks her car in the lot about 100 feet from the door to her apartment. The door to her apartment was behind her building, the apartment building, in an alleyway. So as she's walking towards her building, she's approached by a man whose name is Winston Mosley, and he followed her home. So really quickly, Winston Mosley was born on March 2nd, 1935, so they were actually the same age. He was from the Ozone Park area of Queens. Um, He was married, he had three children, and he had no prior criminal record. So as Mosley approaches Kitty, he is armed, he has a hunting knife. She does spot him, tries to run, but he overtakes her, and he stabs her twice in the back. So after he stabs her, she screams, and she says, oh my god, he stabbed me, help me. She's heard by several of her neighbors. I think the light bulb has just gone up (laughs) said i think she knows what this is i know this story (laughs) this is such a fucked up story it's a very fucked up story so um she cries out he stabbed me help me she's heard by several neighbors but few recognize it as a cry for help so they hear a commotion they hear a yell but they can't you know what it's like when you're 
first of all, it's the middle of the night, so most of them are probably sleeping. So they hear some sort of yelling commotion outside. Very few recognize that she's saying help. They just hear things outside. But I feel like in the 60s, your windows are going to be open because it's not like centralized air. It's not going to be central air. Yeah. It's the middle of the... No, it's not. It was March. It was so March. So it would be cold. Oh, uh, okay. See, uh, I'm... I'm <laughs> Florida, <laughs> where it's hot and humid yeah. all no, this the was time. March, so it's going to be cold. Um, we don't have seasons here. But yeah, so very few recognize it as a cry for help. There is one neighbor. His name is Robert Moser. He shouts over to Mosley, let that girl alone. That's what he says. And I just love the language of let that girl alone. Um, Mosley runs away. He's startled. He runs away. And the neighbor sees Kitty begin to stumble toward the building. Uh, Winston Mosley is seen, he is witnessed getting into his car and driving away, but he returns about 10 minutes later and he's wearing like a wide brimmed hat so he can cover his face and people wouldn't recognize him. And he starts searching for Kitty. So he looks in the parking lot. He looks, uh, there's a train station kind of behind the apartment building. He goes to the train station, looks there, does not see her. He eventually finds her in a hallway behind the building. Now it said hallway in the article. I don't know if it's actually a hallway or if it was the alleyway but the way it makes it sound was there's like a two-door situation so Mm -hmm. you go in there's a hallway and then you'd have to go in another door yeah to get to like the inner part of the building Mm -hmm. and the door the inner door was locked and because of her weekend state she couldn't get up get the door unlocked so he finds her he finds her there and continues his attack he stabs kitty several more times before raping her stealing $49 from her, and then fleeing. So altogether, from the very beginning to the very end, the two attacks last for approximately a half hour total. There were defensive wounds found on Kitty's hands, which means that she did try her best to fight off her attacker. Um, She was found by a neighbor who was one of her friends, this woman named Sophia Farrar, who sat there with Kitty and held her until the ambulance came. Sorry, I'm getting a catch in my throat because... I love Kitty Genovese. So, <laughs> so my my question is mm-hmm. like, so the way that I'm envisioning this building is like, you know, those older buildings where like, ev- like the apartment, like the apartment buildings, like the doors are inside mm-hmm. a hallway, right? Like it's almost enclosed. Yeah. So it's like, wouldn't there be two apartments like right there that would have heard something? I mean, not necessarily. So I'm just kind of thinking about the apartment that my dad used to live in up in yeah. Pennsylvania. So like, you walk in and you have like a hallway vestibule area. Yeah. There's no apartments in there. Yeah. That's where like the Like almost like an entrance. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the breezeway. So there's that's where the mailboxes are. That's where blah, blah, blah. That door you can get right into. Yeah. You can be buzzed into or unlock the second yeah. door. So there's a good chance that. And of course, I don't know the building. I'm not. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I haven't seen the blueprints. But um, I, feel I like, don't know for sure. Yeah. So there's a good chance that it was an interior hallway that maybe nobody resided uh, off okay. of. So that could be possible. So here's where the infamous factor of the story comes from. So obviously at this, well, not obviously, at this time in the early 60s, a 911 system had not yet been implemented. Um, There is some question as to the accuracy of how many witnesses actually heard Kitty's cries for help and how many calls were actually made. So there's some dissension amongst experts as to uh, truly who heard the, the calls for help. Um, initial reports, so initial articles printed by the New York Times state that there were at least 38 people who heard Kitty in distress that night and only two calls were made to police. 
in psychology, if you took a college psychiatry, uh, psychology course, specifically social psychology, um, the bystander effect is something that you will learn about. Kitty Genovese's murder is literally the textbook example of the bystander effect. This is how I learned about Kitty Genovese. My sophomore year in college in a social psychology class, one of the first chapters in class, we talked about the bystander effect and Kitty Genovese was the story that we heard about. Basically what the bystander effect is saying is the more crowded of an area you're in when you're in distress, the less likely somebody is going to help you because the people in the crowd assume somebody else is either already handling it or somebody else is going to take care of it. I'm at the mall and it's the holiday season and I fell and I fall and twist my ankle, which is possible because I'm a klutz and I've also fallen in malls more than once. Um, I've also gotten stuck in dresses in dressing rooms and had to be rescued by strange people. I mean, you what? You 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 injured your hand. That's a true story. You injured your hand and your ankle, like right next, like after Within each a other. Month of each other. Yeah, because yeah, you know I'm I a love class. that. The getting stuck in the dressing room is a great story for another day. Um, but anyhow, <laughs> so I'm a classic. Klutzoid. So like let's say I'm that. at the mall. <laughs> let's say I'm at the mall and I'm walking down the area and I trip and fall and break my ankle mm-hmm. as one is wont to do. I could be yelling and screaming for help. And because it is a crowded holiday mall season, people are less likely to come and help me because they're going to assume that other people are already doing it. So that is what the bystander effect states. So this is why Kitty's case has become so historic. It's talked about all the time because it's talked about year after year after year in these psychology classes. So people coming through these classes all know Kitty's story. Mm -hmm. The light bulb just blew out and now I feel like Kitty's here and I'm freaked out. It's the ghost. Remember this happened last week? No, last week. Last week it was that. Yeah. This room has some kind of presence. And we're not helping. It's my my (laughs) ex-roommates. They're fucking haunting me. They probably Ouija'd the hell out of this house. So my cheese board is actually a Ouija board. Jesus Christ. Jovi had an apple and summoned the demons (laughs) because the charcuterie board is a Ouija board. My God. Wait, are you guys guys superstitious then? With that? I'm just a little stitious. (laughs) What? I don't get it. What did I miss? I love that joke. Because she said, are you superstitious? And I'm like, no, I'm just a little stitious. Oh, Get see, it? my mom was always like, don't bring a Ouija board home. But I was like, it's a cheese board. Oh, no, I wasn't allowed to have a Ouija board in the house. Oh, no, me no, either. No. I mean, I'm not trying to summon demons, but I was like, I'm going to serve some cheese on <laughs> I'm it. I'm not going to summon demons, but I am going to put out a good spread. <laughs> I mean. Oh, goodness. Oh, I mean, God. now I'm like, should I give it to Goodwill? <laughs> I don't think I want it. Salvation Army. bad will. Okay. Ooh, back to Kitty. okay so again bystander effect this is what has made the kitty genovese case so infamous at the beginning it's reported that one witness called the police after the initial attack and the witness states that a woman was beat up but got up and was staggering around the second call came in a few minutes after the final attack but this witness hmm, this witness called not the police, but called two of their friends to ask their advice of what to do. Then the second friend that that witness called, called their friend, and that person finally called the police to get the police to the apartment complex. So there was like a third part, third, third party person who called the police, and finally the police arrived after that call was received. Kitty was picked up by an ambulance around 4.15 in the morning. So... 
Like she got home at three fifteen. The attack took a half hour. That means that she was lying there for a half hour before the ambulance came to get her. So my thing is, is like, did people not have common sense back in the sixties? Uh, apparently, not a whole heck of a lot. People don't have common sense today. This is true. Because I'm just like. No, I know. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. It like, I could sad. never imagine, like... I can never imagine I'm picking up the phone to call for help. Why am I not calling the person that can help? Like, why would you call three of your friends to phone, like... I don't know. What should I do? Call the police. Not me. I'm not going to be able to do anything. It's, it's like the other week. Unless it's like, I can't friend, solve your problems. Exactly. Unless your friend is an EMT, there's no reason for you to Well, and the worst way. thing that you could do is you call someone... And then they show up and nothing's happening. Right. Like. Exactly. You, it's not like you get in trouble. Right. For right. calling the cops. If there's a true concern to actually like, call the cops. I've called the cops over things that I've just thought were weird. Right. Doesn't, Me too. It doesn't like. Yeah. You know. Who, it's redonk. Granted, I was always told to mind your own business, but you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you just got to be like, this doesn't seem right. Um, okay. So yeah. So Kitty was picked up by an ambulance around 415. She did die on the way to the hospital. Her girlfriend, Marianne, was woken up in the morning by police at the apartment. They took her to Queens General Hospital and she was the person who had to identify Kitty. So the police, after uh, Marianne identifies Kitty, interrogate Marianne. And a lot of their questioning centers around the nature of the two women's relationship. Uh, Not only are they questioning Marianne about the nature of their relationship, they also ask neighbors about the nature of Marianne and Kitty's relationship. Why does that matter? Well, it shouldn't. But there was the suspicion of, I guess, maybe because the possibility that they were gay, that this could be a reason. I honestly, truly, I don't know why, but they were very... um, adamantly questioning the nature of their relationship. Marianne was actually initially considered to be a suspect, but a break came just a couple of days later. On March 19th, Winston Mosley was arrested for suspected robbery in his neighborhood over in Prospect Park. Uh, Detectives recall that the white car that he was driving matched the description of the white car that was on the scene of Kitty's murder. Um, So when he was brought in to be questioned about the attempted robbery, they started to kind of ask, you know, where were you on this night, et cetera, et cetera. And he wound up admitting to killing Kitty almost immediately with very, very, very few questions being asked of him. Um, He also admitted to killing two other women. Okay, that's what I was going to be like. I... Because you said that he had no criminal record before. So I was like, there's no way that you just all of a sudden. He didn't. So he had not been caught up to this point. He claims that um, his motive was simply to kill a woman. Literally, that was his motive was to kill a woman. Um, He said that women are weaker, so they're easier to attack because they don't fight back. Cute. Um, he claims that he got up from his bed that he shared with his wife at two o'clock in the morning and just drove through Queens until he found a victim. He went on to then confess to murdering these other two women, one uh, whose name was Annie Mae Johnson and another who was only a 15 year old girl. Her name was Barbara Kralik. Um, he also admitted to committing between 30 to 40 burglaries. Dang. He is uh, also given a psychiatric exam and is found to be a necrophile, which is. Wait, what is that? A uh, person who enjoys having sex with dead bodies. Ooh. Yeah, cute. So, um, the trial begins shortly after on June 8th, 1964. I love the swift justice of the 60s, my friends. The murder took place at the beginning of March. By March 19th, he is arrested. By June 8th of the same year, the trial is already beginning. I'm a big fan. 
obviously I understand that things are different now because there's so much more that has to be gone through. Evidentiary? That's not a word. With evidence. (laughs) DNA and and all of the scientific evidence that needs to be gone through is much more uh, in-depth than it was back then. Um, But, oh my gosh, how wonderful would it be for somebody to be arrested and within two months they're already on trial. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Anyhow, Winston Mosley initially enters a non-guilty plea, but it was eventually changed. His lawyer uh, changed his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. He describes that the events of the night of the murder of Kitty Genovese, as well as the other two murders that he committed, or that he says he committed, um, as well as several other numerous burglaries and rapes. So he's up on the stand singing like a canary, right? The jury deliberated for seven hours before returning a guilty verdict on June 4th. So a four-day trial. It was so funny. I'm writing this before, right? I'm making notes. And I'm like, trial begins on June 8th. Guilty verdict on June 11th. Like, so only two days later. And then I'm like, four days later. (laughs) I'm like, man, I don't know numbers. Okay. Um, June 11th. Mosley was, it's awful. It's so terrible. Mosley was sentenced to death and showed no emotion when the jury foreman read his sentence. Some spectators in the, um, in the courtroom were cheering. They were applauding. The judge stated that while he personally did not believe in capital punishment, he says, and I quote, when I see a monster like this, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch myself. He was just absolutely disgusted. By Winston Mosley. The Court of Appeals did eventually commute his sentence, though, from death to life imprisonment. Um, There was detail about this, but honestly, I found the language in the article very confusing. I didn't understand why they changed it. It had something to do with his um, insanity plea. So I think it actually was a technicality. Like I said, the language in the article was just hard to follow as lawyer speak, and I really didn't understand. But... um, so now let's talk a little bit about the accuracy of the initial reports of the murders. So like I said before, there was definitely some question about truly how many people did witness this, truly how many people did call. Was there really a total of 38 people who heard this and didn't say anything? Um, because it kind of throws into question this whole bystander effect theory that has been taught for years oh, yeah. and years and years, right? So um, when... They were looking into the case. They kind of looked into the case on an anniversary of the murder. Because of the layout of the complex of buildings between the the apartment building, where the parking lot was, where the train station was, etc., it came out that no one person ever would have been able to see the attack from start to finish. Because the attack itself, not even just the two separate attacks, each attack separately happened in such a way that it was constantly in motion. So there was no way for anybody to really see the entire crime take place. So because of that, they couldn't truly ever say, yes, you witnessed this because you would never have been able to witness the whole thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, Investigation by police and prosecutors showed that approximately a dozen individuals had heard or seen portions of the attack, though none saw or was aware of the entire incident. Only one witness was aware that Kitty was stabbed in the first attack and only one other was aware of it in the second attack. Uh, Many were entirely aware, or I'm sorry, many were entirely unaware that an assault or homicide had taken place at all. Most thought they saw or heard a domestic dispute. Some thought there was Mm -hmm. a fight coming out of a bar. Some thought it was a group of friends leaving a bar and just random raucous noise on the streets of queens in the middle of the night you know that's kind of where the questions come in right is most people that heard things didn't really know what they were hearing at all um after the initial attack punctured her lungs 
leading to her eventual death from asphyxiation, it is unlikely that she was even able to scream at any volume after that first initial scream anyway. So again, it's that calling into question of after her screaming the first time, nobody probably heard it anyway, which again is also heartbreaking in a completely different way. So Martin Gansberg, he was the journalist who wrote the initial report in the New York Times, um, it was found that his article had a decent amount of inconsistencies, more specifically those 38 witnesses. So he was questioned as to why he presented the article with so many errors in reporting, and Gansberg replied, well, it would have ruined the story. Yeah. So on October 12th, 2016, October 12th, 2016, so just about I just, four years I think ago. I, I think I'm like, I want to say things, and then like, I just sit here like, so like stone-faced, and then people don't. Forget that people can't see me and how, like, uh, it's not that I'm not acknowledging what's happening. I know. There's a lot of facial acknowledgments happening here. So on October 12th, 2016, so just almost four years ago, the New York Times actually appended an editor's note to the online version of the 1964 article. And they redacted part of it and stated that later reporting by the Times and others has called into question significant elements of this account. So the Times themselves were kind of like... We didn't corroborate. We didn't follow up. We fucked up and printed it anyway. Um, Now, that's not to say that the bystander effect has now not been studied separately. Oh, yeah. So even though the bystander effect in this case truly doesn't really fit, um, it actually has been studied in separate studies and still is true. And there's a TV show. Of what? The What Would You Do? Yes. There is the TV show What Would You Do? I guess that is technically about yeah. the finger effect, right? If, if yeah. somebody's getting yelled and screamed at or saying bad things to them, would you actually be the person in the crowd yeah. to stand up for them? I love watching that show. It's so interesting to watch people. Thank you, Kitty <laughs> Yep. Yeah. So the case is also considered to be one of the driving forces for 911 emergency call systems being put in place. So... Um, Up until the late 60s, there was no centralized number for people to call in case of an emergency. If somebody needed to contact the police or the fire department, they called the nearest station, um, so the direct number, or they would actually have to dial zero and reach telephone operator and be connected to the police. There was no direct emergency line. So this is sometimes blamed for the confusion after the attack and why so few calls were made because people didn't really know like where to call or what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the case isn't the entire, the sole reason for the implementation of the 911 system, but it kind of set in motion the, uh, movement towards its creation. So it really was kind of the, the spark that lit the flame. Mm -hmm. Um, so just kind of some follow-ups of where are they now type of a thing. Um, Winston Mosley, um, in 1968, after being transported, he was being transported back to jail from a hospital in Buffalo, New York, where he was undergoing minor surgery. Winston actually escaped from the transport vehicle by stealing the transport driver's gun and fleeing. And he squatted at a nearby vacant house where he remained there undetected for three days. The owners of the house came to check on it and found him there. Mosley, because he's great, he held, um, Mosley held the married couple hostage, binding and gagging the husband and raping the wife. Yeah. Mosley then stole the couple's car and fled. He broke into another house where he held a woman and her daughter hostage for two hours before releasing them unharmed and surrendering to police finally. He was given two additional 15-year sentences to run concurrently with his life sentence. 
Um, and after his 18th parole denial, he went before a parole board 18 times and was denied each and every time. Mosley died in jail on March 28th, 2016 at the age of 81. He had served for 52 years, making him one of the longest serving inmates in the New York state prison system. After Kitty died, she was buried near her family in New Canaan, Connecticut, um, some of her family members have been seen taking part in documentaries about Kitty over the years. There was a film that was released in 2015 that was a documentary film about the case called The Witness. I think that's where I saw her because I remember mm-hmm. watching a documentary in regards to it. Mm-hmm. That's why, like, when you said the the street, that that's what triggered yeah. me because they, they went through the whole setup. Like the map of where they were. Yeah, because that's what I was, like, envisioning when you were describing the apartment building. Mm-hmm. So I know for sure her brother, at least one of her brothers, uh, participated in this documentary. Um, and they've been seen throughout the years. They would also be part of the parole hearing process for Mosley. Um, you know, they were seen, but haven't heard much from them. Marianne Zelenko attended Kitty's funeral in Connecticut a couple of days after she was killed. And for the next six months, uh, claims that she locked herself in her apartment that they shared together to grieve alone. She said she alternated between crying and drinking for six months. I, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Uh, breaks my heart. Sorry. Um, she moved to Brooklyn and eventually about a year after Kitty's death, she resumed dating. Um, she wound up receiving a bachelor's degree in social work and she did get a master's degree in statistical analysis. Um, the article that was written in the Chicago Tribune about her, she talks just so beautifully and eloquently about her relationship with Kitty. And she talks about how when she pictures Kitty, you know, she thinks about all the good times and stuff. She goes, and then that last image of seeing her and having to identify her just flashes before my mind and it just it's it's never left her and it's just so so sad so she retired in night um, oh my god choking up i love these two she retired in 1997 and the last i saw she was living in vermont um i tried to look up to see if i could find her to see if she was still alive um i googled her before i left the house and as i put in her name it said mary ann um Mary Ann Zelenko or Zelenko obituary. And I'm like, no, but then when I clicked on it, I couldn't find it. So I'm like, yes. So I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if Mary Ann is, is still with us. I there's, I hope she is. Um, and if she's not, I do believe that she is, is with Kitty. So, um, I love that story so much specifically the, about Kitty and Mary Ann. I think it's an important story to tell for Mm -hmm. the two of them and just a, you know, a love story for the ages. So I do recommend if you read nothing else about Kitty Genovese, read the beautiful article written by Jeff Perlman for the Chicago Tribune. It was, um, actually published on March, uh, I want to say March 12th, 2004 was the 40th anniversary of the murder. So that is the story of Kitty Genovese, the bystander effect Crazy. and the initiation of the 911 emergency call system in New York. So <laughs> So my side note onto that is mm-hmm. um when I used to go out by myself a lot, mm-hmm. there is this app and it's called Noonlight. Mm-hmm. And um you basically hold the button until you're you are like where you need to be so you'd like hold it so it says hold until safe but then like then you have to put in your oh shit hold on <laughs> don't don't call 911 please okay yeah so basically <laughs> what happens is if i release it and i don't enter my pin in quick enough it calls 911 that is 
amazing. I never heard of that. Isn't that amazing? And then like, so then they just sent me a text now and they're like, glad you're safe, Nikki. The Noonlight team. That's so cool. Isn't that? And like, I feel like a lot of people don't know I've about it. I've never heard that. So Download like. Noonlight. Noonlight. So like, I think you also have to like, there's, I think there's a free option and then there's like also a like, you can pay for it, but it's like, it's very cheap. You know, if you're by yourself and like, I used to have to walk to like my car after work at night and it was like, it just got really creepy. Yeah. I remember when I was um, going to college, I would take a lot of night classes because I was working full time during the day Mm -hmm. and I would be walking from class into the parking lot at Mm -hmm. night. But of course, when you get to campus to go to class, the parking lots are still full because day students are still there. Mm -hmm. So you're parking leagues away from the building where you need to be going to class oh yeah and then i would be leaving class it was nine o'clock at night and i'm walking across campus yeah and i used to put my keys between my oh yeah and i remember having this conversation with my mom and she's like i just really want you to be careful i'm like mom i watch buffy and in my head i'm like that is gonna do nothing yeah (laughs) watching buffy does not keys keys between the hands like Go for the sensitive spots. Yeah. But like that app. That's amazing. I've that's never a really, heard of yeah, that. Yeah. That's an awesome. That. Download Noon Light. Noon Light. All right, guys. That's about all we have for this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed listening to the story about Kitty Genovese as much as I enjoyed talking about it. Um, you can find us on social media, Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at Stories. So like us there. Leave us some comments. Say hello. Um, you know, like, subscribe the podcast wherever you are listening. Put in those reviews. Tell everybody how much you love us. And um, yeah, we'll see you next week for more bed crime stories. Sweet dreams. Our theme song is the song Industrial Music Box by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0.